0: Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Rusty Young, a Denver native who played with Benzie Crick, one of denver's biggest bands back in the late 60s he then became a founding member of poco the legendary country rock band after 50 years rusty remained the only player to have appeared on every poco record and at every poco performance thanks jay it's great to be here you were a prodigy you learned to play the lap steel at a very early age Six. (laughs) It was a different century, too, actually. (laughs) You graduated from (laughs) kindergarten and and embarked (laughs) on your musical career. At the time in Denver, potential guitar students all started out on the lap steel guitar before advancing to the regular six-string guitar after a few months. That's correct. One room, there would be about
1: 20 students sitting on wooden chairs with your lesson on a music stand in front of you. I guess we must all had the same lesson from week to week. There was like two teachers who would walk up and down the aisles and listen to you play, and then they'd put a star on your music a silver star if you were pretty good a gold star if you were doing great red if you failed you would do six months of learning to play lap steel and it was just to kind of get the idea of looking at music it was all tablature they call it they weren't real notes they were just fifth fret string one that kind of thing. And after six months, then you would move to electric guitar, to standard guitar. So this way, they could sell you two guitars in the space of six <laughs> months. It was a racket, you know? I got started on lap steel, and I really liked it. So I stuck with it, even though I learned to play electric guitar as well. I was there literally before they invented pedal steel. Once in the late 50s and early 60s, where Fender made a pedal steel available to everybody across the country. Before that, it was just showbud and custom-made guitars in Nashville. Then I
0: moved on to pedal steel from the lap steel. At that time, most people thought generically that pedal steel was for country music and maybe even Hawaiian music. There was an influence after World War II. Yeah,
1: especially on lap steel. That's the Hawaiian instrument.
0: but your parents had country music as their goal right. for you.
1: Yeah, every Friday night was the Anchor Inn near our house, <laughs> and they would go here, this live country band. I think it was Randy King. They'd dress me up. I looked like Roy Rogers as a midget, <laughs> little tiny kid, and they'd plant me up on the bar. There'd be all these really drunk old guys, and at the very end, there'd be me in my little cowboy suit, and they'd feed me those pickled eggs. <laughs> Stunted my growth <laughs> for years. But the funny thing was, the drunker the guys got next to me, the more afraid of me they got. It was a hallucination. So I grew up with that country music, and my folks loved it. They encouraged me and bought me my first pedal steel guitar.
0: And you copied licks from every record you could get your hands on? Yeah, especially
1: Buck Owens does Harlan Howard. That was my tutoring. But it was a confusing time. On a Sunday, I would get up, we'd go to church, and I would play for the congregation. It was strict Baptist. My folks were they pretended to be anyway. And the Baptists hated everything. If you danced, it was the work of the devil. You couldn't applaud, you couldn't smile in church. So they would say, okay, Rusty's going to come up and I'd play Amazing Grace or something all by myself and it would be dead silent. You finish and there's no sound at all. So it was a great training ground for my professional career because (laughs) the same thing happens now. (laughs) But from there, my folks would get in the car and drive up into the Rockies and there would be some little bar that held 20, people and i would play with this little group of kids that were all part of my music teacher's school and we'd play from two to six or four to eight in the afternoon on a sunday so i would go from this baptist church where you weren't allowed to applaud or smile or dance or anything directly to a bar where (laughs) (laughs) you were allowed to do anything back in those days i was so confused as a kid so confused, which explains a lot. You were 12? I yeah, mean, is it? 12. Yeah. And my dad would pass the hat and probably make $10 on a Sunday, and I was the richest kid I knew.
0: We're talking 1958. You had the best bike on the block. I I'm had guessing. the
1: best bike on the block.
0: What was the Denver scene like in terms of your gear, where you could headquarter? Happy Logan's was a mainstay.
1: Right. He was the guy in town. Go see Happy. And uh, I bought a lot of guitars from him, and I took electric guitar lessons, steel guitar lessons too from him. Mr. Gibson, I remember, was my teacher. That was a big part of the community until Don Edwards Guitar Center came in on West Colfax. I actually knew him before he opened his store because I answered an ad in the paper for a guitar teacher. And he had a studio in his basement of his home and I think I was 14. My mom actually did the talking on the phone, and I showed up in my white shirt and my little tie and said, I can teach, because I was pretty good at that point. I thought he was going to throw us out once he saw me, but he hired me, so we moved from there to the store on West Colfax. That was a breeding ground for steel guitar players. Every steel guitar player in the state would hang out. We'd all kind of have little jam sessions there, and that was real influential on me and the world of steel guitar as it is today. This guy, Donnie Buzzard, came from Oklahoma, was a brilliant steel guitar player. And we'd sit in there and we'd have these little jam sessions and he said, have you ever tried playing through this speaker thing? That was Alvino Ray, actually in the 40s, was the first guy to use this. And Then he said, you should really try playing with a comb instead of a bar. It'll make it sound like a banjo. And he had all these tricks and I picked up on it and then I said, well, what if we plug into a Leslie and see what we get? And so. All that experimentation started at Don Edwards Guitar Center in Colorado in the early 60s, 62, 61. And that's the stuff I took to L.A. when I went out there, fuzz tones. And actually, at one point, I played Purple Haze backwards. Those were the kind of things that we were doing going into the beginning of Poco and that whole country rock thing that came out of L.A.
0: Did you have hopes for any other career path before music took over?
1: I went to CU and I was a business major. Made it through just about two years, I think. I realized that there was one calling for me. It was very, very
0: clear. At that point, you were a member of Benzie Crick, Denver-based group. The odd moniker was inspired. Legend has it, a local business sign on an appliance store.
1: That's what I heard. Yeah, they'd been around a while before I joined the band. The drummer from that band came into Don Edwards and heard us jamming, and then came back the next day and said, "Would you join?" In our band. And that drummer was George Grantham, who ended up the drummer in poker.
2: Still in love with you, baby. Still in love with you, baby. You're still driving me crazy. You're still driving me crazy. In love with you, baby. Baby, don't you know my heart is breaking up inside of me?
0: Benzie Crick got a lot of local airplay. There was a single on Uni Records, Still In Love With You Baby, Sky Gone Gray on the flip side. Went to number one here on KIMN, which was the dominant top 40 station here in Denver.
1: So right after that's when I got the call to go out and play on the Buffalo Springfield's last album. And then from there, things just exploded. We were still together when I went out to play the session. And then while I was out there, Jimmy and Richie asked me to help them start a band. So when I came back from that session, I said, sorry, guys, I got this thing to do.
0: That session was for Kind Woman. Richie Pure had formed Springfield with Stephen Stills and Neil Young, and Richie's songs arguably made the Springfield the first rock band to experiment with the country sound, yeah, and Kind yeah, Woman, the best-known Springfield mm-hmm. track. Trust claim to fame. But you found yourself playing Pedal Steel on those sessions.
1: Kind
2: woman Don't leave me lonely
0: The Springfield, a pretty volatile outfit. They broke up around (laughs) 69. Very. Richie Poco with Jim Messina, and they recruited you.
1: There was me, Jimmy, and Richie, and I figured these guys are famous. They're going to know the best players on the planet. Putting this band together is going to be really fun. Eight months later, there still was no band. There were a lot of guys that came through, but none of them fit. None of them were right for the band. Greg Allman came by and played with us for a while, and, and that wasn't a good fit. I mean, he was perfect for what he ended up doing was obvious. And Graham Parsons, for a number of months, was playing with us. There was no rock to Graham Parsons. He did hardcore country, and he was very good at it, very well known in LA for it. He was a friend of Richie's from the folk singer days in the early 60s in New York. They had shared an apartment in Greenwich Village. So Richie invited him over to play with us. And Richie, I think, was envisioning like he and Stephen Stills, that vocal duo they had or the Everly Brothers. He wanted a singing partner and he thought maybe Graham would be that. And we worked with Graham for a while and it didn't work out. There were some personality things and musical things. And finally it got to the point I'd been in LA for like eight months and I in a little apartment out there in the valley. I sold my car. I sold everything in Colorado I had and I was running out of money. I thought, man, if I don't get this together, it's never going to happen. I told Richie and Jimmy, I said, I know a great drummer, sings high harmony. He'll be perfect. And so I called George. I said, George, get out here. And Randy Meisner I knew from the poor. And growing up, playing in rival bands here in Denver. And I'd always wanted to work with him. I thought he was a brilliant, unique talent. So I went over to Randy's house. They were doing odd chores and playing local gigs here and there when they could. Randy, and he's in the front yard washing. He had a bug eye sprite, a little green one. There were tiny little cars that looked like frogs, and he got all his hair cut off, a flat top, because he thought he was going to have to go into the military. He's out washing his car when I came over, and I said, Hey, Randy, I got this thing going with Richie Fury from the Springfield. We could use a bass player. You want to come over and check it out? And he said, Sure. That's how the band got together. I brought in George, and I brought in Randy. Once that group clicked together, it was great, and that's how Poco got started.
2: Well, there's just a little bit of magic in the country. a so
0: There was a ferment for integrating country sounds into a rock format. You were all trafficking in that. Graham left.
1: Crosby had just left the birds, and so there's a perfect place for Graham to go with Chris Hillman, who has a bluegrass background, and it fit perfectly. Graham said, I've been doing this kind of music that's a cross between country and rock with Richie. Let's try it. And they did, and they had a record contract, so they could go into the studio the next day and record. We didn't. It took about six months or eight months before we could get into the studio. So Sweetheart of the Rodeo came out shortly before Picking Up the Pieces did.
2: You ain't going nowhere
0: The first manager for Poco had been the Springfield's road manager. road manager and got elevated. He made an interesting choice for you guys in his managerial duties. Yes,
1: he did. One day I was stopping by his office. Oh, well, it was his apartment. He used to do that all the time. And he was on the phone, and I hear him talking to the agent. And he said, yeah, it's in New York. Who's Hendrix is playing it? Yeah. What the, what's that date again? Yeah, oh, you know what? We've got a gig for that day, and it, it pays better, so I'm, I'm afraid we can't do it. And he hung up the phone. And I said, what was that all about? And he said, well, they got this thing. It's a festival, I guess, in New York called Woodstock. We got a better gig for that night, you know? And I said, are you kidding me? I hear Crosby, Stills, and Nash, that's their first gig, and Hendrix is playing it, and the Who? Where were we playing? Oh, well, it's a high school gymnasium here in Long Beach. So, uh, oh,
0: yeah, I, he was brilliant. There you were, collectively, in the center of the fertile Laurel Canyon scene with no gear, no rehearsal space, no dough, and you had one unexpected resource.
1: Once again, I went by our manager's office, our his apartment. I come in, and on the kitchen table, there's this big stack of airline tickets. I looked at him, and I said, what's this? And I picked one up, and they were airline tickets for Neil Young. Neil frequently would not show up at the airport. They'd have a tour booked with the Beach Boys or something. They'd get to the airport and know Neil, which was Shocking. really a sweet thing to do for the guys. So Dickie would just throw them in the glove compartment of his Volkswagen, and finally they piled up so big that he couldn't close the glove compartment. So he had them on the table there, and he said, Isn't this a shame? We'd been kicked out of Richie's house by the police and Jimmy's house by his girlfriend's, and there was no place for us to rehearse and get the band going. It was a real dilemma. So I picked up one of the tickets and I looked at it and it was flying somewhere across the country and the name on the ticket was Initial N Young. Well, the light goes off. My first name, my first legal name is Norman N Young. Young. So back in those days, they had an office in Hollywood for the airlines, and you could go in there with your ticket, give it to them, and they'd give you your money back. Is that shocking? (laughs) So we gathered up all these tickets, Neil Young tickets, took them down there, and I think it was $6,000 worth of (laughs) tickets. And so we got to rehearse at SIR Studios, the very best studios in Hollywood, for like six months, thanks to Neil. Now, Please do not tell him. (laughs) I know he'll come back after us, but if it weren't for Neil Young, I don't know if Poco would've got off the ground. Thank you, Brother Neil.
0: The band initially called Pogo, and Walt Kelly was the creator of the Pogo comic strip, but he sued. We were on stage at
1: Anaheim Convention Center, and a couple of guys with briefcases and suits and this thing about four inches wide saying cease and desist. The Archies had a big hit at the time, and I think Walt was figuring he was going to license the name Pogo and have a hit record. I don't
0: know. I thought you were going to say that they had a hit called cease and desist. (laughs) They they may have. (laughs) You had been on the lookout for new applications of the pedal steel. With Poco, you had a chance to start implementing this stuff to great effect. Everything from barring with an aluminum chair out of the kitchen to playing through a Leslie for organ effects. Or the fuzz tone or any of that kind of stuff. You were an innovator. See, that
1: was the deal. Pedal steel was known as a country instrument, and that's the way it was played. Rack, 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 rack. That was it. That's what people expected. I wanted to show that it could do more. It could be any kind of instrument. I could play right along with Jimi Hendrix, just as wild and crazy as Jimmy on steel guitar.
0: On that Poco track, El Tanto de Nadia Regresa," how's my Spanish? Nice, 18-minute long song. At the very end, your steel guitar work, high-powered, dare I say, (laughs) ear-splitting at times. Ear-splitting, for sure. uh, But that was maybe the first real standard bear for what the pedal steel could do.
1: Yeah, I went through all the motions on that song, I played everything. Part of it was because Richie didn't have enough songs to fill up an album. (laughs) You want to know the (laughs) truth. How about if we play just
0: really long? Poco started out with great promise in a commercial sense. Incredible musicianship, your concerts. The word I always use is joyous. You guys knew how to it transport was. people.
1: Yeah, Richie was a great entertainer, is a great entertainer.
0: And George, I don't know that there was ever a better high mm. harmony singer besides being a hell of a drummer. Right. And Meisner on vocals. And,
1: Those uh, two together and, were killer. And
0: your virtuosity, it was wonderful. And of course... That didn't last all that long. <laughs> no, Randy Meisner left Poco to join Rick, Rick and then Yeah, later the Eagles. Jim Messina departed after a couple of albums to form Loggins and Messina. Timothy B. Schmidt stepped into the bass slot. Mm-hmm. And Paul Cotton, wonderful guitarist, stepped into Sing and Write. Yep. And you all moved to Colorado in the fall that's, of 1970. That's right. Did your Colorado status influence the decision at oh, all? Oh, yeah,
1: sure. They were having earthquakes in L.A., and Jimmy and Richie got afraid of living in LA I think a lot of people were and so they wanted to move and they were suggesting San Francisco <laughs> that was a little odd yeah, that's a great idea guys and so what's really great in Colorado why don't you come out and take a look and see what you think and we moved to Boulder in the early 70s and lived there until Richie left the band we really had to move back to LA because of business at that point but uh, yeah we moved here because George and I both said you guys are going to love it in Colorado and Richie's still here he loved it
2: i
0: wonderful records. A Good Feeling to Know yeah. was the one that Richie famously thought was going to break the band. Right, You must have all shared that sentiment.
1: Well, I did. I did. When it came time to record an album and Richie would present his new songs, that was the most exciting day there could be for me because you'd hear that new material that you knew you were going to live with for years and years. and It was always so great and so inspiring. He played Good Feeling and we recorded that. and We'd go out on the road before it was released and play that as an opening song and radio guys would come backstage and say that's your hit. And we got all this positive feedback on it and the label released it and I think it barely cracked the top 100. It just went flat on its face. I'm not sure exactly why. I've heard various theories but I think that was a heartbreaker for Richie because he'd really counted on that. Neil Young was having a huge career. Steven Stills had Crosby, Stills and Nash. Jimmy had Your Mama Don't Dance with Logs and Messina. Randy had Take It to the Limit. All these guys were having huge success and we weren't. And he was the songwriter. He was our main guy. And I think that affected him greatly. So when David Geffen came and said that these guys are holding you back, it was easy for him to jump over to J.D. and Chris Hillman. I probably would have done the same thing.
0: But it wasn't a mortal jolt to the group, to your credit.
1: It's pretty tough. There were a lot of people who thought that that was going to be the end of the band. And David Geffen tried to kill the band. He actually went to our agent and said, if you book another show of that band, I'm going to pull all my acts. He made a real concerted effort to end Poco then. But the guy at the agency said, go away, take your axe. He thought that was outrageous. The industry stood up
0: to Geffen, and so
1: we were able to keep going.
0: Plugging on for the next few years, some amazing material. Timothy's Keep On Trying. I've
2: been thinking about all the times you told me.
0: Paul's Indian Summer.
2: Indian Summer is on its way. It's cool at night.
0: And your Rose of Cimarron.
1: We had this friend, Stuart Margolin. It was actually a friend of Jimmy's that I met. He did a lot of production work in L.A., like commercials and videos, and actually Angel on Rockford Files, his sidekick. Neat guy, and into all kinds of different things in L.A. And he called me up and he said, I'm going to produce a record for Roy Rogers. Do you have any songs? And I'd been working on Rosa Cimarron. When we were touring, we went through Oklahoma, and in those brochures that are in the airports and hotels, there was one that had Rosa Cimarron across the top of it. And I thought, boy, those words are perfect song. So I missed around. I had the chorus. I didn't think much about it. It seemed a little different for Poco. So when he called me, and said, got any songs for Roy Rogers? I thought, that is perfect, because Roy was the lead singer in the Sons of the Pioneers, a band I grew up with, Tumble and and Cool Water. They were the original Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They had three-part harmony and acoustic guitars, and I thought, Boy, Rosa Cimarron, if I could finish this song and make it a contemporary rock song with the melody the Sons of the Pioneers would do and that kind of harmony, it would be a really killer combination. So I finished it went down to the RCA studios I walked in and it was great because Roy's sitting there and I still have the Roy Rogers hat that you can take off and a Derringer comes out of it and shoots your friend I had the chaps and all that I was thrilled to just go meet him but he's sitting there on the couch and he's got the cowboy hat with the Concho things on it and the cowboy shirt with the fringe and his black pants had the Conchos and fringe down the side and he had those cow boots or it looks like a cow just died and they made him into boots I was breathless absolutely breathless when I saw him played the song for him and and they loved it. Then I got a call about a week later that Roy decided he couldn't sing anymore. He wasn't going to do the album, so I played it for the guys, and everybody loved it. Everybody that heard it loved it. So it ended up the title track to that Poco record, and it's the most recorded Poco song by other artists in the entire catalog. It was number one in Germany by Hoffman and Hoffman. <laughs> They told me they were the Simon and Garfunkel of Germany. Oh, sure. So, yeah. (laughs) So, it went to number one there, and it was huge in Austria. All over the world, it did really well, except here. (laughs) And it's like a cult classic, or a poco classic anyway, here, but it never really was a big chart record.
0: At this point, you've seen the Eagles adopt... Poco Sound and emerges the triumphant synthesis of country and rock. You're a gracious person, but that had to smart a bit in retrospect, <laughs> right?
1: The way I saw it was that they were just really, really smart. If they hadn't written a great song or a hit song, they went out and found one or two. So they knew how to market. And the truth of the matter is, is they were so successful,
0: other labels would always think, wow, they could be the Eagles. When Randy Meisner left the Eagles, Timothy quit Poco to take his place. You'd had it with Poco. You were going to start the Cotton Young Band? Well, Tim and George both left. Paul and I said, is
1: it still legitimate to call this Poco? Maybe we should change the name to something else it still sounded like Poco. We thought, why change now? We're carrying the torch. I was fortunate to have Paul Cotton with me because he's a great singer and player, and it really gave continuity. And he was in the band, what, 30 years? So without Paul, I don't think the band would have gone on, and without Crazy Love, the band wouldn't have gone on after 78.
0: You recruited a keyboardist in an English rhythm section at that juncture.
1: Yeah, Crazy Love took off right away. Then there was a real call for us to go out, and all of a sudden we were everybody's favorite son, and we got lots of phone calls from people. Hey, would you like to write a song? <laughs> people who had never called me before. Lots of calls to come out and play on the road. and Yeah, we put that band together, and off we went. Tonight I'm gonna break.
0: Legend resurrected the Poco Spirits. It sure did. And you finally cracked the top of the charts. First number one, yeah. uh, You wrote and sang Crazy Love.
1: That's a real irony that can be music, I guess, because when we started this band, I didn't sing and I didn't write. But I was around great singers and writers. If you're around it all the time, some of it's bound to rub off. It took a while from Rosa Cimarron to Crazy Love before I hit that one song. And that was a song that was written in 20 minutes or a half an hour. It just was a gift that came. And when I played it for people, I said, I, I'll change the name, because Van, Van Morrison. Morrison, there was that brilliant song called Crazy Love. And I sang the crazy love, ooh. And I said, listen, I'll get words for that. Don't worry, guys. And everyone said, you're out of your mind. Don't change a thing. <laughs> And it's funny, because when our record came out, the Almond Brothers released a song called Crazy Love at the same exact time. It's just one of those things so it didn't change a word and probably was a good idea.
0: Yeah, left to your instincts, <laughs> yeah. we would have had Goofy Love or something yeah, right exactly. on the charts. That wouldn't have been good. And Paul's Heart of the Night, a second night. top yeah. 20 hit. So not bad work for a band that some had written off. The of. record label had written us off. They were going to drop the band until they heard those two songs. One interesting sidebar to the Legend album is that the cover art, the line drawing of the horse, you still use that to this day? The trademark, yeah. It was designed by a gentleman named Phil Hartman. People know Phil for what he went on to do comedically as Neanderthal Man on Saturday Night Live and the voice of Lionel Hutz on The Simpsons. Just a wonderful talent. Before his comic career took off, he was a working graphic designer. We were managed by his brother, John Hartman.
1: All of John's clients had a building that was that group. Phil had an office in the very back and you'd go into the office every day and see Phil. He always wore this baggy pair of overalls and a flannel shirt a lot of times. And that was his uniform and you could expect to see him in the back working on his little table doing all kinds of you know like wood cutting all these really cool art things he created the csn logo because he nash logo the america logo he did all their album covers during that period of time he was really great. he was so much fun to be around he was so much fun it's a landmark album cover it's in all the album cover books that show the best of the best about five years later
0: you moved to nashville Shock. Music
1: was changing, and our LA label wanted us to go to Nashville and make a record with those people. And so, uh, w- we went out there and uh, experimented with making a record for those people, in quotes, <laughs> which didn't work out. It was a crazy world there. The big fish in a small pond thing, there were a lot of L.A. guys
0: who had gone out there,
1: and it was a pretty interesting scene.
0: You formed a band called Sky Kings at one yeah. point that was yeah. different. It was yeah. a project that, that never really got fun. traction, but it was good music. Oh,
1: it was really great. It was a band with Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers, John Cowan, who's in the Doobie Brothers now, but he was in Newgrass Revival. Brilliance singer, one of two or three best I've ever heard. And Bill Lloyd, a friend of mine that was in a band called Foster and Lloyd that was country rock, the beginning of that in Nashville. Poco had got to the point where I thought it'd be nice to take a break, and so I did. And RCA came to us and said, will you make a record? So that's what we did. We made a record for RCA, but when we delivered it, uh, I have no idea what they were thinking, but they decided that they didn't like the record. But it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. At the end of that, I got a phone call saying, what do you think about going out again?
0: You orchestrated a POCO reunion of the five original members in 1989. That album Legacy, successful with a hit, Call It Love. You sang the lead vocal. This was in the video era. I call it the, the beginning. The uh, water, fire, and thighs. Yeah, right. Every video had to have those three elements yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yours had two of the three.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they do all those out scenes of the legs and the fire and that stuff. And they shoot the scenes of us singing the song in a studio. We are in Nashville. We are supposed to play for all the RCA executives around the world. Somebody played the video for Richie, none of the guys in the bandit scene. And it had a little too much thigh for Richie. And Richie got on a plane and left. So we were standing up there in front of all the RCA executives without Richie. It was not a fun time. That was the beginning of the whole reunion thing. And it started it off on a really bad note because after that, Richie was so much into doing it, he contributed a little bit, but his heart wasn't in it.
0: Richie, a man of faith, a
1: good record. I love that record. I think that record's overlooked in history because that documents exactly the beginning of so much American music. In that one band, on that record, you have Buffalo Springfield with Richie, you have Loggins of Messina, you have Randy Meisner, you have the Eagles. You have Poco Me, the crazy love, and that whole 50 years of Poco. So in one American band, you have Eagles, Long as a Messina, Buffalo Springfield, Poco. Now, what other band has had that kind of influence on the American rock and roll scene? I think that's absolutely amazing. Who else has a record like that? Nobody could do a record like that. I know it went gold and all that, but I just think that record deserved a
0: lot more recognition. The team of you and Paul Cotton carried on as Poco, Mm -hmm. and you're still at it. Interestingly enough, your last record was a Rusty Young record. Yeah, go figure. (laughs) Everyone else has quit, (laughs) he's the only guy left. (laughs) Waiting for
1: the sun. Very, very proud of it. In the old days, I'd been offered a couple times to do solo projects, but I had always concentrated on Poco. I'm winding down now. I'm really coming to the end of my career. I'm getting tired. (laughs) I thought, you know, I've never made a solo record. Everybody else that's been in this band has made lots of solo records. Usually each guy's made five or six at least. I haven't. It took a year. I wrote the song, sitting in our cabin there in Missouri, Went to Johnny Cash's studio, the Cash Cabin, there in Henderson, Tennessee, which had a great vibe. Recorded with my band guys. They know what I like and what I want to hear. I think you can hear all the elements of Poco over the years in it. I'd love to play for you a song called My Friend that, to me, sounds just like classic poco and it starts here we are after all these years still the same as we were back when which is what i've learned every time i'm around these guys everyone is exactly the way they were in 1968 no one's really changed at all the song talks about all the years we've gone through and the amazing careers that everyone's had all the success that everyone's had we're still friends give us a tune rusty (laughs) my friend
2: After all these years, still the same as we were back when, oh so long ago, you know, my friends. Day by day, my friends, my friends. Mm
0: -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. All right. What's your favorite musician's joke?
1: Well, you know, the perfect toss is a banjo in a toilet without hitting the rim. But I have a creative one for you. So we're playing in St. Louis. We're on the bill with James Gang, Joe Walsh's first band. Joe is just killer. He's just brilliant, great playing, and it was so entertaining. Backstage, which if you're always wanted to be a lead guitar player, but he's really a folk singer. So anyway, he says to Joe, Joe, if I could only play guitar like that, uh, I don't know. You know, I just, that's my dream. And Joe said, hey, it's not that hard. Don't worry. Listen, I can teach you to play just like that in 20 minutes. i'm standing there and i taught guitar for years you can do that in 20 minutes i gotta see this so joe says yeah come to my room after the show and 20 minutes you'll be playing just like me boy we get back to the hotel and i'm going with richie i want to see this richie takes his guitar and we go up to joe's room knock on the door and joe's Flying pretty high, you <laughs> know, he's having a good time after the show. And so Joe sits down on one twin bed and Richie and I sit down on the other. And uh, Richie says, so oh, I'm ready. Come on. And Joe says, all right, here. And he goes, he says, okay, now you do it. <laughs> Richie's face just drops. He says, do that again. And Joe does it. Your turn of course it goes nowhere so he said oh thanks a lot Joe and that's been great it's wonderful and we left so about two weeks later my phone rings and it's Joe Walsh and he says hey listen I'd like you to play on our record I've got a song here that'd be perfect for a pedal steel I said "Well, I'd be glad to but Joe it's, it's not really that hard <laughs> if you've got 20 minutes
0: <laughs> alright buddy
1: You want to hear one other story? So Graham Parsons, Graham's been working on songs with us. I see that Buck Owens is coming to Disneyland. And I've been telling Richie Fury about Buck Owens. I was a huge fan, and I would go to every concert that came through Denver. Elish's, I think instead of my graduation, I went there to see Buck Owens. Huge fan, and I knew Tom Brumley, the steel player. And I said, Richie, you've got to hear Buck Owens live, because that was the original country rock band. They were definitely rock and roll. There's no getting around it. So Richie said, yeah, let's go. And Graham says, hey, I know Buck. All right, let's meet there. We'll meet at the gates at Disneyland. We got to Disneyland and Richie and I are standing there waiting and there's a commotion at the gates. And it was Graham. Graham had just got back from Europe. He had been hanging out with David Boy and Keith Richards. This is 1968. He's wearing a dress, a linen dress and sandals, very tasteful sandals. You know, he had that thing around his neck and I think he had a flower in his hair, but I'm not sure. And he was pushing a baby carriage. He was there with his wife. He raised a real ruckus. They weren't going to let him in for a while. They finally did let him in. They were worried about his sanity. So we'd sit down to watch Buck, and Buck was great. After the show, Graham says, you want to go back and talk to Buck? Sure, let's go. So Graham walks in wearing this dress, and there were celebrities backstage. Johnny Cash was back there, Dolly Parton was back there, and the Buckaroo guys are just giving him such (laughs) shit. not the place to be dressed like a girl. Graham looks at him, he says, "All right, you can laugh all you want, but this is what's going on in Europe. All the guys (laughs) are wearing this you watch next year you're going to be wearing this Cash looks over at him and he says well son do they make it in black (laughs) thank you Rusty you're you're welcome (laughs) thanks Gene (laughs)
0: The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org.